I've been uh, waiting for a long time to come to this text, and uh, I come with joy to share these verses with you this morning. This is the apex of the letter of 1 Timothy. It's the theological center. It's a transition place in the letter of 1 Timothy, and it is a glorious summary of the identity and purpose of the church. These these three verses give us the reason for our existence as the church in the world. If you ever need to spend some time recentering and asking yourself, who are we as New Testament church? Why are we in the world? Why doesn't God just take us to heaven the moment we are justified? What are we to do? What is the meaning of our lives as the church? These three verses tell us that very, very clearly. So would you stand with me one more time this morning and we will read this text together. Three verses. 1 Timothy 3, 14-16. Let's read it together. 1 Timothy 3, 14-16. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The main idea is simply this. We must know how to behave as God's church. That's what this letter is about. Let's ask God to help us as we study His Word today. Father, we come to You. We open Your Word. And we, we wait to hear from You through Your Word, Your Spirit is indwelling each believer. And He is our teacher. We ask that You would illumine the words of the the book that He has inspired. He would illumine these words to us, not just intellectually that we would understand in our minds, but prick our conscience, convict our hearts through these words Expose us in our weakness, in our sin, in our apathy, in our failure. And comfort us in Christ who is our risen, ascended, reigning, interceding Savior and Lord of all who has promised to build His church and that not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. We ask that You would do Your work in us and through us. For Your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. This text is immensely important for all of us. And I I pray that we would each be able to clearly grasp and understand its truths in our hearts. You know, it's, it's so easy to forget or to lose focus of who we are as the church. 
I imagine that it, we would get quite a variety of answers if we took a survey across the, the, uh, the United States this morning and say, what is the church? And they give definition. And then you ask, what is the purpose of the church? Boy, we'd get such a variety. It's easy to lose focus of who we are. We, we all get caught up in the routines of work, ministry, we get weighed down often by the struggles and challenges of this life. It's, it's natural to being weak, sinful human beings. We become distracted by all of the cares that we are giving ourselves to and even the enjoyments that God has allowed for us in this earth. It's easy to get distracted. And we forget who we are as the church. The church of Jesus Christ. And if we lose focus of who we are, we will surely become distracted from then the purpose for our presence in the world. And if we lose focus of our identity and our purpose as the church in the world, then we will not comprehend how much our behavior matters as the church. So, so this letter is about how much our behavior as the assembled people of God matters. You see the main idea, we must know how to behave as God's church. That comes right from the text. Paul writes, he says, I'm writing this to you so that, I love so that's in the Bible, because they tell you why. I'm writing this so that you may know how one ought to behave in the church. That's why I'm writing this. Paul says to Timothy. And so the Holy Spirit is going to press, impress upon our hearts according to His will through the pen of Paul why our behavior matters so much. He's going to remind us who we are, why we're here, and, and to whom we belong. And it's good. It's good to remind ourselves of this. It's good to go back and remember foundational truths. Sometimes in the busyness of all of it, we forget why we're doing what we're doing. And so it's, it's a good practice in the body of Christ to, to, to take the time. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why do we meet here? Why do we have growth group? Why do we have prayer meetings? Why do we, why do we witness why, do we, why are we all about this? Why do we open the Bible and spend hours in the Bible? Why are we doing this? Why do we have the Lord's Supper? All the things that we do as the church, it's all packed into these verses. And so the question I want to frame, to use to frame these three verses, that I think these three verses answer is again, why must we know how to behave as God's church? Why is that so important? Why do we need to know how to behave as God's church? And this answer, this, this text gives us three answers. And we're just going to look at the first two today, which we'll really spend most of the time on point two, and we'll save point three for next week, Lord willing. But there's an authoritative urgency that Paul fills this text with. It matters. Our behavior matters. There's, there's an authoritative urgency that He brings to this issue. And that it matters because of our holy identity. 
There's four titles that Paul gives to us in this text. And because that's who we are, our behavior matters. And then because we have a great Christology. We'll look at that next week. Number one this morning, let's look at that first point together. Why must we know? Because this text, first of all, is filled with an authoritative urgency. It's important that we know because Paul is urgent with this. This is verses 14 and 15a. These matters call for an apostolic presence. I want you to remember, turn over with me, first of all, to Acts 20. I want you to remember with me the historic background of Acts 20 and the Ephesian church. And you'll, you'll begin to understand why Paul has such an urgency when he's coming to matters of their behavior. Just notice in Acts 20, verse 28, this is the Ephesian church that Paul is talking to here, church that he was instrumental in planting. And it's the same church that he's writing to here in the letter of 1 Timothy. And he says in verse 28, to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know, Paul says, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and, and from among your own selves will arise men twisted, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Somehow in God's provision, Paul knew, even as he was planting this church, that even among their own leadership would come men who would teach perversions of the Gospel. And so now, as he writes the letter of 1 Timothy, that nightmare, if you will, that he talks about in Acts 20 has come true. The people have been perverted in their doctrine their behavior has become immoral because he addresses it in this letter. Their leadership was corrupt. And the first thing Paul wants to do about it is come there. Think about that. He says, I hope to come to you soon. I want to, I want to get there. I want to deal with this issue. This is so important. Could you imagine how Paul must have felt to learn of the regression of the Ephesian church? He loves these people. More than that, Christ loves them. He just said in Acts 20, these are the people for whom Christ died. And their doctrine had wandered and their behavior had 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 gone into the mud and their leadership was corrupt and Paul desired so much to be present in Ephesus to deal with those issues of behavior in the Ephesian church. He was in Macedonia at this time, which was approximately 200 miles from Ephesus. And of course, he didn't have a car that could go 75 miles an hour and just you know hit the freeway and get there in a hurry. Back in the days of Paul, it probably took person average of 
uh, you know, 10 days to go 200 miles, maybe 20 miles on foot if, if Paul was walking, 20 miles a day. And he says, I'm, I'm coming as soon as I can. That's what I want to do. I don't know that Paul was ever able to make it because God providentially hindered him. He, was, he had prison issues to deal with at this moment under house arrest previous to this letter. And so what you need to see here though is that these issues are important to Paul. It's so urgent. These, these issues of behavior are so important to Paul that they, they, in his mind they require apostolic presence. I'm coming. But the text tells us that Paul anticipated delay. He says, I'm writing these things to you, but if I delay, I want you to know. So that's why I'm writing. In the providence of God and with the urgency that Paul felt about the situation, he wanted to get the message of this letter to the people as soon as he possibly could. So, he knew that a delay was expected, and so his letter could get there before he could. Whatever gets there first, I want it to get there. There's a great urgency in this. There's an authoritative urgency. These matters called for an apostolic presence, but he couldn't get there, so he wrote a letter. I'm thankful that he did in God's providence because we have this letter. Letter B in your outline under the authoritative urgency. These matters call for apostolic writing. Paul wanted the message of the truth about the behavior of the church to get their ASAP. They needed to know these things now. Before the corruption developed further. Again, the point is this. The matters are urgent. When Paul couldn't be there in person, he sent a letter. And so these matters are such they call for immediate action. Here's the summary. This is the conclusion we can draw from Paul's urgency. He couldn't come, so he wrote because the matters needed dealing with as soon as possible. And so these matters call us then, the church, not just the Ephesian church that Paul was immediately writing to, but but every true church of God, to respond humbly with action fitting with Paul's authoritative urgency. Remember, this is an apostle who's writing here under the divine inspiration of the Spirit. These are important issues. They're urgent. That's why behavior matters because of the authority that, is, that, it, that comes with this letter. The urgency. And the matters that Paul is referring to are all the things that he wrote about in this sixth chapter letter. So he says, I'm writing these things to you. What things? Well, six chapters here in 1 Timothy. These things. So that you can know how you ought to behave. These are the things that Paul needed to write in order to deal soundly with the behavioral issues in the Ephesian church. So that you may know how one ought to behave. First of all, notice there that he's writing directly to Timothy so that you may know. And that's, that's instructive right there because the church is changed from the leadership through the congregation. Right? The people are watching the example of the leadership. It starts with leadership. Timothy needed to know this and to influence other leaders in the church. He's writing about an experience of behavior, not just information. When he says, so that you may know, 
that that knowing doesn't just refer to what is in your head, but, but what is also in your skill and ability to accomplish something. Again, Paul wants to give us more than information in this letter. He wants our lives to change. He wants us to have a skill and an ability by God's grace to conform to God's Word. And he's writing for the correction of all how one ought to behave. Anyone. This is to Timothy, but for the church. And he's writing about behavior that is necessary, essential, and must become a continual pattern of life for the people of the church. That's why he says this is how one ought to behave. It is needful. It is necessary. And it's a way of life. And Paul has packed this letter, beloved, with with behavioral correctives. I mean, he begins with eliminating false doctrine. We've already looked at that in chapter 1. Teaching sound doctrine. Disciplining those who oppose sound doctrine. Praying evangelistically. Praying in unity. This is chapter 2. Dressing modestly. Submitting. Learning the Word. Rearing godly children. Pursuing the and affirming godly character. We're into chapter 3 now. Dealing with false teachers. Chapter 4. Exercising for godliness and becoming good servants of Jesus Christ. He talks about physical exercise, Scripture reading, exhortation and teaching, spiritual gifting, rebuking one another, caring for widows, providing for families, remarrying younger widows, honoring elders, confronting a sinning elder, ordaining elders, living in the workplace, living with contentment, fleeing from the love of money and other destructive sins, being generous, especially the wealthy, and more. I mean, this letter is packed with Issues that needed correcting in the Ephesian church. And and all of these behavioral issues come with apostolic authority and urgency. Paul says, I want to get there now. I can't get there now. I'm writing a letter. Paul was in earnest. And so I think we ought to receive this letter the way that Paul gives it. In earnest. As we respond to Spirit-inspired, authoritative words of urgency. We must know how to behave as God's church. Why must we know? First, because there's an authoritative urgency. But secondly, this morning, because of our holy identity. Our holy identity. Who we are as a church. Paul uses four titles here in verse 15 which describe the identity of the true church of Jesus Christ. These terms that Paul uses, again, clearly tell us who we are and what we are to be doing. They give us our purpose in the world. If you ever want to remind yourself of who the church is and why we are here, this is the heart of it right here. Notice in the text how one ought to behave in the, first of all, the household of God. There's the first title. We are the household of God. Second, he says, the church of the living God. And then there's two more that come together, a pillar and buttress of the truth. There you are. That's who we are. We've alluded to these titles very briefly and multiple times on our way to these verses, but I would like to take some time to understand with some depth and detail what Paul's getting at here. 
And I think, I think it's astounding. I, as I was going through this text this week, studying and preparing to give it to you, this is, there's, there's some texts more than others, and really we should feel this way about every text, but there's, as, as we come to certain texts, there's some more than others that make us feel, I do not have the physical capacity to communicate the glory, the majesty, the, the, the amazing wonder of this text to you. And I, I, it's like, I don't have the vocabulary to do it. I don't have it. And so I, I trust the Holy Spirit that He will fill us with a sense of this text. It is amazing. It's sobering. It's clarifying. It's motivating. This is who we are. This is, this is who God says we are as a church. But before we look at each title individually, I want you to notice something, just the titles as a whole, and take to heart the fact that Paul is talking to us not primarily as individuals here, but as a corporate body. Do you notice that? A household. That, that's, a, that's a body. Uh, a church of the living God. He's speaking to us as an assembled people. In fact, this is how the New Testament addresses Christians most of the time. Not primarily as individuals but as members of a unified body of believers. The New Testament doesn't envision any kind of Christian life apart from faithful, committed fellowship in the local body of Christ. There's no such Christian in the New Testament that does not have a lifestyle of committed fellowship with the depth of that New Testament Word in the body of Christ. That's what you see all through the New Testament. The letters are written to churches. By far. And pastors of those churches. And we're called to live constantly and earnestly pursuing by the grace of God that fellowship, those one another's in the New Testament. We're a household. We're a church. Right? Our new lives in Christ and our identity in Christ compel us to do so. But I have to say that, that sadly, our culture has influenced people to think that the Christian life is an individualistic, sentimental, disconnected existence that, that picks and chooses at will what to be devoted to and committed to without regard to the revealed will of God. About all of life in the body of Christ and the involvement in the mission of Christ. So many have come to think that they can even craft their own message to proclaim. we have been taught to treat church like a drive-thru. Uh, we pick what we want. We put together our own combo and leave the rest alone. That is entirely opposite to what God has designed for His church. The core message and mission of the church has been designed by Jesus Christ for every member of His church for every time and place. And so I have to say, beloved, additionally, that even the trials that, that the church has faced over the last year and a half and the immediate Internet access that most of us have to popular ministries have not always been handled wisely by God's people. Trials and internet access can be a great blessing to us. They should be, right? A great blessing from God for our spiritual growth. But sometimes we allow them to pull us away from genuine fellowship in the body of Christ. 
And all the while, we're deceived into thinking that our church experience has been fulfilled. So many of the things that Christ has commanded us to to give to one another and receive from one another in the visible, tangible, real, local body of Christ, many Christians are now simply trying to receive online. It's easier, safer, less vulnerable, less relationally costly. Sure. Think of, for an example, instead of counseling and discipling one another in the local body of Christ and confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another intimately as the New Testament calls us to in James 5, we go to the internet, we search for our counseling there, and we only pray about our sin struggles alone. That's not productive for the body life that God has called us to. Or, instead of allowing ourselves to be shepherded by the church leadership that God has sovereignly placed and provided for us, and that knows us and loves us personally, we choose to follow and submit ourselves to church leaders on the internet to whom God has not given us and that do not know us and love us well. We self-diagnose. We follow whom we will. And we remain disconnected from life in the body of Christ which God has given to us. God has given every believer to a local body. So much involved with that. This is not spiritually healthy for the body of Christ, nor is it helpful to fulfilling its calling in the immediate community that, that Paul is talking about here. That doesn't build the unity and fellowship and gospel adorning behavior in our relationships with one another that this letter calls us to. Brothers and sisters, listen, there is so much more to the fellowship of the body of Christ than what we have experienced and given ourselves to. to. I hope we're recognizing that. So much more. There's so much more that God has planned for us. Christ is our head, our reigning Lord. He has so much more that He has purpose to do in us and through us for His glory and our joy. So I ask, do you want that? This is why the Apostle Paul, by divine inspiration, gives us these four titles to enlighten our minds about who we really are. To, to dramatically change our perspective of the church, to transform our desires concerning life in the body of Christ, to clarify our purpose in the world, to ignite our spiritual motivations to behave according to God's plan and will for His church. That's why Paul gives us these. So first of all, Paul says, we're the household of God. The household of God. This this title could bring two different images to mind. The household idea could bring to mind the image of a house building, right? Or family, family members. Either one. Both are used in the New Testament. Both are used by Paul for analogies of the church. But the most immediate context would lead us toward the concept of family. So the reason I say that is because 1 Timothy 3.4 talks about this. He must manage his own household. Talking about the elder there. Again, it's a family word there. Same thing in verse 5. Same thing in verse 12. 2 Timothy 1.16, Titus 1.11 all use this word household to refer to a family situation. That's what Paul's doing here, except this time, God is the head of this household. 
We are the household of God. God is the head of this household. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Ephesians 2, 19-21, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This seems to be the sense here. We're the family of God. God is our Father. Christ is our brother. We are brothers and sisters to one another. And you know what? True believers, we will be brothers and sisters in Christ forever. Not just now, but in heaven. This is your permanent family. God is our Father. Christ is our brother. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 12, 46-50 While He was still speaking to the people, Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and sister and brother. Isn't that amazing? We are the family, the household of God. 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. You know, when, you know when this makes the most difference? is when you're a believer today in Afghanistan and you see your family being taken from you. And you see your church straining under the weight of persecution. And you keep in mind the fact, God is my Father. These are my brothers and sisters and I will see them again soon and we will be together forever. This is my... How amazing is this truth? This ought to powerfully affect the way we behave, shouldn't it? This ought to. It's not enough just to think that we're family though. Keep in mind exactly what Paul says. We are God's family. That's the real difference here. That ought to greatly alter not just our behavior toward one another, but our behavior in entirety. The name of God is upon us. The spiritual life of God is within us through the new birth. We have God's spiritual DNA as it were. The Spirit of Christ, our older brother, is within us, causing us to increasingly think and talk and act as would our older brother. Romans 8, 28-30. Our adoption into God's family has been paid for by the blood of our older brother, Jesus Christ. We didn't earn it. We didn't buy in. We're adopted sons and daughters and heirs, joint heirs with Christ, who will reign with Him as an eternal family. We're the family of God. We're the family that God manages, that God provides for, that God protects and loves as His own. Do our lives individually, but most importantly, do our lives together look to the community around us like God is the head of this household. This is the issue Paul is driving at. That affects our behavior. 
consider in this context the corporate commands that Paul is, has been giving to us so far. He's, again, speak the true gospel to one another. That matters if you're the family of God, right? Have done with false doctrine and, and give each other sound doctrine. Do we sound like God's family when we speak the gospel to one another? Think of how passionate you are as parents about making sure your kids are protected from ideas that you think will harm them and providing what will do them good. But what about each other here? What about the songs we sing? About the preaching we, we do? The, the lessons we teach? The materials we, we share? Do we give gospel truth to one another? and protect one another from false teaching like like God's family? What about disciplining those who err from the faith? The end of chapter 1. When your toddling son or daughter begins to walk toward the street or the stairs, do you sit and do nothing? No, you jump up and <gasps> most moms suck a wind, right? And then they grab the baby, right? And, and what about when your aged parent runs the risk of Hip breaking. Do you not care for them? How can any of us do nothing when we see a professing brother or sister in Christ begin to walk the path of destruction spiritually? Right? We, we're God's family. That's, that changes the way we behave together. Doesn't it? We, do we pray for one another in unity? Like family? Do, don't cause one another to be tempted to sin? Do we learn the truth together so that we can raise godly children? Do we affirm godly leaders and servants? These are the things that we've talked about so far up through chapter 3. I think recognizing and remembering and treasuring the truth that we are God's family will cause our level of devotion to these behaviors to greatly increase. They ought to by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're God's family. Won't this understanding affect how eager we are to spend time together? Hebrews 10.25 To forgive and make things right when there's been an offense? Ephesians 4.32 To confess and deal with sin? James 5.16 Galatians 6.2 To serve and meet needs? 1 John 3.11 to pray, Galatians 5.16. It, it ought to make a difference. And I have to say just firsthand that you have treated me like family through this season of illness. Unbelievable. You know, that has been a super, super comforting thing to me when I don't know what the next day holds and to know that I have a family who I can lean on when I'm weak. But it's not ultimately about me anyway. We're a family for the proclamation of the truth in our community. Do we remind others of our Father? Ephesians 5.1 Imitate God as beloved children. May the Holy Spirit grant to us clear and holy perspective of who we are as the household of God. May He give us the desires and ability to live in a way that is fitting with our family name. But that's not all. Paul also says, we are, let her be, the church of the living God. We're the church of the living God. As we consider this, this title, let's first focus, notice that the title that Paul assigns to God Himself. 
Paul says he's the living God. This is a glorious title for God. This is the living God. It, it has a significant, magnificent, majestic Old Testament background. This is the name that is given to God in contrast with all of the other made-up pagan gods of the nations. There's all the other gods of the nations. Then, what? There's the living God. All other gods are made up by men, perpetuated by demonic teaching, and in reality, non-existent. The impact of this name for God upon the Ephesians would have been fantastic because they lived in a pagan city that worshipped and proclaimed what God? The great God of the Ephesians was Diana. That was the female name Artemis, the male name. And so they would have, they would have understood exactly what Paul was doing. The God of the Ephesians is no God at all. But the church is the church of the living God. Our God is the one and only true and living God. He is self-existent. No one created God. He has life in Himself. He is self-sustaining. He doesn't need anything outside of Himself. He's eternal. He never had he never began. He will never end. He is. All life comes from Him and He sustains all living things. Yet He Himself needs nothing outside of Himself. I love the, the verse in Acts. It says, in Him we live and move and have our being. There's only one God and one source of life. I love, I love the psalm that, that talks about this. We just read it a few weeks ago. Psalm 135, verse 15 says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And then the psalmist goes on to say to Israel and Aaron and Levi and those who fear the Lord, Bless the Lord. I think of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel uh, lives in, in the pagan domain of Cyrus, or Darius the king, the Medo-Persian ruler. And there were other men who were serving the kingdom with him. And he was very, Daniel was very high up in, in, in the reign. And those men tried to find some way to discredit Daniel. Do you remember that? And, and, and how they said, man, we can't find anything amiss in this man's life except we think we can trap him in relation to his God. And so they told Darius, they said, hey, write a decree that says everybody's got to pray to you for 30 days. This is how we'll get Daniel. Darius didn't know what was going on. He was trapped by his own pride. He signed the decree. And then... The other leaders came to Darius and reported, Daniel is not praying to you. He's praying to his God. He doesn't care about what you wrote. And so Darius loves Daniel because of how skillful and wise he has been for, for his, his helpful in his reign. 
And then Daniel is cast into the lion's den. And there's this section right there the next morning after Darius spends a sleepless night and he gets up and he comes and he, and he goes to the, to the edge of the lion's den and he says, Daniel, what's the next thing he says? Servant of the what? Living God. And he makes a big differentiation there because all through the book of Daniel you see that the gods of the pagans are weak. They are non-existent compared with the living God. The living God who interprets dreams through His servants, who enables His servants to lead well even in a pagan land. He, he, he causes people who are thrown into the fiery furnace to come out not even smelling like smoke. He causes the man who goes into the lion's den to come out unharmed. That's the living God. That's, that's the Old Testament context you have for this. And, and then Paul comes and says, we are the church of that living God. We are the church of the living God. The word church literally means a gathering of citizens called out from their homes and, and into some public place, an assembly. And when we speak of church in a Christian sense, it's a group of people called out by God Himself from the world who assemble together regularly to exalt Him, to edify one another, to evangelize the lost. And as this assembly, we are the dwelling place of the one and only living God. Think of that. That's what church is. People gathered together who are the, the dwelling place of the living God. He gives us physical life and spiritual life and, and spiritual unity and, and spiritual gifting. Strength for service. Fruit to show Christ to one another. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the what? Living God. I will make them my dwell, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They'll be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you. You will be my sons. You will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion the fear of God. You can see how this truth must change us. We are the church of the living God. The assembly in whom this God lives. It ought to so transform and elevate our behavior as a church that even when an unbeliever comes among us, 1 Corinthians 14.25, he says the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Think of this with me. When we read Scriptures together, when we, when we preach the Word of God to one another, when we sing together, when we share the Lord's Supper together, when we fellowship in every sense of that word, when we witness together the truth of the Gospel, do we walk mindlessly through those activities? Do we prepare mindlessly for those activities? Or do we reverently enjoy them and anticipate them together with full hearts knowing that the living God is in our midst? That's what the Word says. And it's clear 
It is clear to the unbelieving observer. Is it clear to the unbelieving observer, whether it be a family member or first-time visitor or a child that we, we want to come to Christ, that the living God is in our midst? Is that clear to them? Again, do you see how this truth set firmly in our hearts and constantly upon our minds by the Spirit of God can change how we behave together with a church of the living God? We're the church, the assembly of the living God. Well, we're going to stop here for today. We'll look at the pillar and buttress of the truth next, next week, Lord willing, and then talk about our great Christology. All of this Paul gives to us so that we may know how we ought to behave as the church of God. Think on these things this week, beloved. When you go home, will you be reading through this? Think about, think about how the Spirit of God has called you to be His household, to be His church. As we close this morning, I just want to give a word to those who may be here who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that you have been adopted into the family of God? Do you know that if you died today that you would be with the Savior? The same man who wrote this letter, 1 Timothy, was asked by a desperate man who was trembling with fear, what must I do to be saved? And do you know what the Apostle Paul answered? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That was Paul's answer. You need to be saved if you're not because all of us are born of this world with a sinful nature and we naturally love sin. God doesn't though. He hates it. And He must punish sin. And He will punish sin. If He is good and loving and a holy judge, He will judge our sin. And that means, according to Scriptures, that the person who dies in their sin, loving sin, turning from God, that they will spend an eternity under the wrath of God in a place the Bible calls hell. And I don't want that to happen to any of you. But God is merciful, isn't He? He's a merciful God. And so He sent His Son to come to earth and to live a perfect life, obeying His law, earning eternal life for us. Because you can't earn it. That, that is the biggest farce of time is that men think in their sinfulness that they can be good enough for God. There's no way. You can't be good enough. Only Jesus was good enough to earn eternal life. But that's why He lived as a human being. He obeyed and earned eternal life. And if you will trust in Him, He will give you His obedience. He will give you the eternal life that He earned and He will take your sin and He will take the death that, he earned, that you earned. And that's why He went on the cross because the wages of sin is what? Death. That you and I have earned as sinners. And so on the cross... 
He bore the wrath of God that we earned because of our sin. And then He rose again, conquering death, satisfying His Father, completing the demands of justice so that we could receive eternal life and know God forever. That's the Gospel. And the command of the Gospel is just what Paul said it is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from sin. Turn away from self-righteousness. And trust completely in the person and finished work of Christ. And God promises you will be saved. If you have not known that salvation, that forgiveness, you don't know Christ, would you come to Christ today? He is a sufficient Savior. He is all you need. Let's stand and pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would impress these titles that Paul gives to us into our hearts. May it change the way we think about who we are and why we're here. And may it lead us graciously by the power of Your Spirit toward obedience. And Father, I pray that if there is someone here this morning that does not know You, that they would be enabled by Your Spirit to trust in Christ. Father, please give them new birth. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.